In Genesis chapter 3, we read some of the most tragic words, I think, in the Bible. Adam and Eve had chosen to sin, and they were suffering the consequences of that decision. And this is what we hear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden. The Lord God sent him away from the Garden. Because part of the consequence of sin was their relationship with God was broken, so they could not walk with God anymore, and they could not receive the blessings of the fellowship that they had with God, including the blessings related to living in that, that garden, which was just right or very good. And so they walked out of the garden because of their sin. And ever since that day, humanity has lived in attention right? Intention. Attention where, on the one hand, we live in a world that remembers and longs for Eden. We all have these desires to be in relationship with God and to be satisfied by God and to be in right relationship to His creation. And yet, the tension is we remember Eden and we have this inner longing for Eden, and yet the reality is we don't live in Eden, right? And so, we live in a world that is... Listen, I mean, I love New Jersey, don't get me wrong, but we're not there right? We're not there. We don't live in Eden. And so outside of Eden or east of Eden, we try to create our own Eden. And that's uh, human nature on the one hand. That Sometimes, again, fueled by sin, we think, you know what? We've got to do it ourselves. And so we're going to create our own answer to these longings that we have, again, for relationship with God and right relationship to creation. And the truth is the kings of Israel and Judah, they were supposed to lead their people in saying no to creating their own Eden and rather to pursue the Lord and to to seek the Lord and to worship the Lord and to be satisfied in the Lord. And the fact is that they led their people instead in thinking just like everybody else. In fact, in our passage this morning, we're going to see all these different ways that the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, the kingdoms are split here, right? That both kings of the northern and southern kingdom, that they they thought and they acted just like the nations all around them. And there's a cost to that. Of course, we recognize that we face the same temptation, don't we? To think like the nations. Right? We, fa- we face the same temptation to think like the world does. And by the world, we're talking about those people who are not followers of Jesus. Right? There's this temptation to just go with the flow of the culture. There's immense peer pressure to think like everyone else. And there's a cost to that kind of thinking. Now, we know that King Ahaz failed and, and Jotham even failed. And we'll see Pekahiah fail and Pekah fail. And, you know, they, they all ultimately failed on one, on one hand. On the other hand, we see there's anticipation of a greater son of David, as we've seen all throughout First and Second Kings. There's anticipation of the greater son of David, Jesus the Messiah, who will actually lead his people to be satisfied in him. It's a totally different ballgame. Jesus leads us out of darkness, out of the world, right, and into his kingdom. And yet, for the moment, we're in this little awkward spot where we still have one foot in this world. We're living in this world. Our neighbors are in this world. Like, we just, you know, we have to function. We breathe American air. So be it. But at the same time, we are called to to a distinct way of thinking, to the life of faith, which is a worldview and a philosophy and really 
a guiding principle for every moment. And here's the, here's the thing. The warning in this passage is very clear. Don't miss it. Thinking like the world will destroy you. We're going to see five examples of that in this passage today. Thinking like the world will destroy you. There's a great cost to pay. And these warnings are given to us. Again, it's rapid fire this morning in this passage. There's just a short account of several reigns. But as we go through these reigns, we're going to see this common thread start to show up where it's like, yeah, they're just thinking like everybody else. And that does not lead to blessing. In fact, it leads to the opposite. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 15, verse 23. All right, so you got your Bibles there. We're looking at 2 Kings 15, 23. We're in the northern kingdom right now. We're going to switch back to the southern kingdom in a minute, but we're in the northern kingdom uh, we got uh, new king Pekahiah, all right? Verse 23. In the 50th year of Judah's king Azariah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Just a reminder there. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, what had he done? He had created these false gods, created two worship sites, one in the southern part of the northern kingdom, one in the north for convenience, okay? He created, uh, recreated the, the golden young bulls that Israel had worshipped in the, in the wilderness after the exodus, and he set that all back up and said, hey, th- this is your God, worship this thing. And so that was still going on. That false worship was still going on at this time. So it's, it's just, again, it's worldly Canaanite thinking. Verse 25, though, then his officer Pekah, son of Remaliah, yes, Pekahiah and Pekah. If you have two boys, do not name them Pekahiah and Pekah because they're just too close. Pekah is not related to Pekahiah, though. Watch what happens. Verse 25, then his officer Pekah, son of Remaliah, conspired against him and struck him down in Samaria at the citadel of the king's palace with Argob and Ariah. There were 50 Gileadite Gileadite men with uh, Pekah. He killed Pekahiah and became king in his place. Of course, that's just continued. You know, we've got a cycle of assassination in the northern kingdom now. So that's just the same story again. Verse 26 says, For the rest of the events of Pekahiah's reign, along with all his accomplishments, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Keep going. Watch Pekah now, though. We would expect the same, given the names. What's that we're going to get? Verse 27. In the 52nd year of Judah's king Azariah, Pekah, son of Remaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. Guess what? He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Uh, same song, right? New verse. But watch the consequence in verse 29. In the days of King Pekah of Israel, King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came and captured Ion, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Yanoah, Kadesh, Hatzor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the map, right? <laughs> this is a map of the ancient Near East during this time, this peak in Assyria's uh, empire. This was a moment when Assyria was the largest empire in the world. It was strengthening its hold. You'll notice you can see Judah in blue down there in Jerusalem. Okay, so the northern kingdom of Israel, just above that, the Assyrians came down and in a move where they were just strengthening their, their, their authority over the whole region, they conquered the northern part of Israel. You can see Hatzor, that name listed on there. Uh, the whole area of Galilee, right? All the, all the northern part of Israel, they conquered it and they took the people back to Assyria, which was, that was kind of the mode, all right? To destabilize the, the population and to 
maintain control over it. They basically just took people back. And they, you know, that was it. They kind of robbed them of the people, and it belonged to Assyria now, so on and so forth. So what we need to remember when we look at that map is that God had promised that Abraham's descendants would live on this chunk of dirt. And in Deuteronomy, we find out that there was a condition on that promise, that they had to keep the law of Moses. And if they failed to keep the law of Moses, which they did fail on every page of the Old Testament, right? If they failed to keep the law of Moses, they would be removed from their new Eden, from the land of Canaan. And so, really, for the astute reader of the Old Testament, up to this point in 2 Kings, you're like blown away that this hasn't happened yet. Because we keep expecting Deuteronomy 28, 63 to come true. The wording there, the Lord will rip them out of the land. And it's like, we're just waiting for that. Judges, you read the book of Judges, where is, like, they should have been ripped out of the land. And we keep reading here in First and Second Kings, they should be ripped out of the land. And finally, in verse 29, this particular king of Assyria comes to town. And as a consequence, as a direct consequence of the idolatry of the nation of Israel and its kings, the people were taken out of the land and removed. You get the conclusion of Pekah's reign in verse 30 and 31. Then Hosea, son of Elah, organized a conspiracy against Pekah, son of Remaliah. He attacked him, killed him, became king in his place. In the 20th year of Jotham, son of Uzziah, as for the rest of the events of Pekah's reign, along with all his accomplishments, they are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Here's the deal. You've got to know it. Thinking like the world will destroy you. The first way is in loss of blessing. Loss of blessing. That's what dwelling in the land is. Dwelling in the land is one of the promises that God made to Abraham that he would bless his descendants with. And God says, I'll just give it to you. Because of my grace, right? I'll just give it to you. You'll be in relationship with me, and there will be provision for you and peace, the land flowing with milk and honey, right? All those things that we know about this promised land. The Lord says, I will give it to you if you just stay with me, if you'll just, if you'll just worship me, if you'll just stick with me. And yet this worldly thinking that persisted generation after generation, right? This idolatry It was so deep-rooted that ultimately it resulted in the loss of blessing. And so just like Adam and Eve walked out of Eden, right, as a consequence of their sin, so the Assyrian soldiers led the population of the northern kingdom, most of it, right, at this time, they led them out of that northern part, the Galilee area, right, and led them out of that area and forced them out of the land as a consequence of their sin. This is a warning, okay? And it's very likely that the first readers of 2 Kings may have even been in exile, and so they're reading about this. This is explaining to them why they are out of the land. And it's this warning that says, listen, when you're tempted to think like the world, just remember it comes with a great cost. Because we were made to receive that blessing from the Lord. Now, how does this work practically speaking? Well, on the one hand, clearly unbelief, right? Unbelief never coming to faith in Jesus, that permanently excludes you from blessing from God. Right? So there's a warning there, right? If you're buying what the world's selling, and you're just like, there is no God, it doesn't really matter, believe whatever you want, all that stuff. Uh, Jesus did not really rise from the dead, none of this stuff is really real. Then at that point, that unbelief, that precludes you from receiving blessing from the Lord, right? So there's a warning in that. But additionally, for those of us who are believers, right, there's a warning here that says, practically speaking, when you live in unbelief, you will miss out on some of the initial down payments of God's blessing. There are ways that we receive blessing in in Christ that we will miss out on 
if we persist in worldly thinking and idolatry. This is how that works. For example, when we seek satisfaction in money or friends or grades or career or whatever, then we will inevitably not be satisfied. We will limit our joy to what they alone can give. And what we don't realize sometimes is that that joy, the joy that money can give you, it's not, it's not anywhere near soul-satisfying. That, that achievement in your career, be, you know, getting the best grades, right? Having the highest degree, uh, having the most friends, right? The, the joy that we might get from that outside of trusting the Lord, that joy is not sustainable for our soul. It cannot scratch the itch. And frankly, we just, it's like we willingly walk out of the land. We just, we're like, I'm out of here. We turn our backs on the way that God blesses us in his provision. And that's the nature of the promises that God makes to us, that he will provide for us. We also, when we think like the world, we miss out on the good gifts that result from living by faith. So when we trust God in our family, as we conduct ourselves in our position in our family, whatever position that is, uh, mom, dad, husband, wife, son, daughter, grandparent, whatever, right? When we trust God in that position, there are good things that result from that in our family dynamic and relationships. It's not perfect. There's still struggles, but nonetheless, we see good things happen. And when we trust God in our workplace and at school, we, when we do our work in a way that honors Him, right, and we, we act with integrity and diligence and hard work, right, when we do that, we act with graciousness, good things happen in, in our workplace and at school. Again, it's not always easy. Sometimes there's pushback, but on the whole, right, good things happen, I mean, we think about even just in, in relationships with friends and in the community, like having a gracious Christ-like attitude results in so much blessing. And when we, when we forsake that for just thinking like everybody else, we will miss out on some of that blessing. Now, hear me clearly. By faith in Jesus, we cannot lose ult- the ultimate blessing of God, right? But practically speaking, there is a cost to thinking like the world for Christians. And so this passage does function as a warning for us. By the way, did you know that Jesus does literally facilitate all the blessings that God promised to Abraham? In Galatians 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that directly. All those promises, they all come through the singular seed, Jesus. He is that Messiah. And so the blessings that God made us, right, for the blessings of being satisfied in Him, where do those come from? They only can come from Christ. And so the greater son of David is the, is the one who actually fulfills this blessing. It's like this. Jesus is the only one who can lead us back to Eden, in a sense. In fact, not, he's not only leading us back to Eden, he's rebuilding it. <laughs> right? That's the imagery. Now, even the kings of Judah struggled with thinking like the world, though. Watch verse 32 as we continue on. 2 Kings 15, verse 32. In the second year of Israel's king, Pekah, son of Remaliah, Jotham, son of Uzziah, became king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Uzziah had done. And man, I wish that was the end of it, right? Like in general, he did well. He, he didn't build new idols. He didn't build false temples and all of that. But verse 35, yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense upon the high places. We got to, you know, that's, we'll just pause there in the middle of verse 35. But what is, we'll just to review, what are the high places? All right, the high places were these, 
um, literally tops of hills, millions of hills in, in Israel. And so on all these hilltops, the Canaanites would set up these worship sites to all these false gods and goddesses. And so we're not totally clear on were all the, the high places being used to worship Canaanite gods or goddesses, or were they being used to worship the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But either way, they were unauthorized false worship sites. So it doesn't really matter. And either way, it was Canaanite thinking. It was what the Canaanites did. It wasn't what God had called his people to do. So the fact that those continue to persist is a big problem. And even in general, though Jotham was a good king, with, and he had general stability in his reign. We're going to hear about some building stuff here. Like, that's a good thing. But on the whole, he didn't deal with the nagging problem of idolatry. Worshiping on the high places is thinking like the world. Pick it up again in verse 35. Jotham built the upper gate of the Lord's temple. And again, that's just a sign of stability in his reign. The rest of the events of Jotham's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. In those days, the Lord began sending Aram king, Aram's king Rezin and Pekah son of Remaliah against Judah. We'll come back to that in a moment. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of his ancestor David. His son Ahaz became king in his place. Let's talk about Ahaz. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like his ancestor David. But he walked, now listen, in the ways of the kings of Israel, domino effect. Kings of Israel are thinking like the world. Now the kings of Judah are thinking like the kings of Israel, right? We see that, that pattern. It was really bad. He even sacrificed his son in the fire, imitating, note, note the language there, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. We'll come back to that in a moment. But watch verse 4. He sacrificed and burned incense, where? On the high places, on the hills, under every green tree. Now that, that phrasing, on the high places, on the hills, we've gotten that before. But then under every green tree, what's going on with that? That's actually a term that's used a few places in the Old Testament, first place even in Deuteronomy, uh, to describe the, just the vast number of false worship sites. But the terminology also, it's every lush tree, every green tree. There are not a ton of like massive trees in Israel, okay? So wherever you have big trees, you have water, right? So there's like a sign of blessing. And, you know, those places were by the Canaanites considered to be holy places because there was provision of water there. And so, you know, they everywhere. But man, just do you hear it in the language, the lush tree? It just sounds kind of Eden-y, doesn't it? Like these Canaanites were looking for satisfaction, and they were trying to worship their gods, and they picked these beautiful areas, the tops of the hills with glorious views. That's where we should worship the gods and goddesses of our culture. And the, where the trees are, where there's water, that's a blessing. We should worship these gods and goddesses of the culture there, right? And you know what? It's, it's got that flavor, that taste, that maybe I was made for this. But you know what? Let's carve this image of this god and set it up here. And let's put this stone here that represents this god or goddess. And like, that's how it worked. And so not only did Jotham, Ahaz's father, even though he, he individually did right on the whole, he did not remove the high places. And so his son Ahaz falls prey to the temptation to do what? To think like the world. And so now he's following the kings of Israel. And he's going, he's not just tolerating the high places. He's there worshiping on the high places, offering sacrifices on the high places, burning incense to these gods and goddesses on the high places and under every green tree, trying to recreate their own Eden and make blessing for themselves. And here's the danger, okay? Thinking like the world will destroy you. It results in loss of blessing, number one. And secondly, it results in persistent idolatry. 
persistent idolatry. We want to note here two things. The length of time that these high places have persisted, okay? It's been generations. And secondly, the, the variety of the high places. Which God do you want to worship? Which goddess do you want to worship? Which problem are you having? There's a Canaanite high place or a lush tree for that problem. It's almost like you go into the bookstore, find it on Amazon. You got a problem, there's a book on how you can fix it, right? That persistent idolatry, it's really just the creation of false Edens or faux Edens, pseudo-Edens, where they claim, oh, come and worship at this site. This will fulfill you. It will not. Those are man-made substitutes. And the lie, it's really straightforward. The lie is everybody else is doing it. Come on. Everybody else is doing it. You should do it too. They're probably satisfied. They're not satisfied. I don't care what their Instagram feed looks like. They're not. They're not that happy. Nobody is. It's unnatural, right? All those pictures. Like, no, this is not, listen, this is not going to satisfy you. Now, the man-made substitutes, right, what do they do? Well, they cause problems. They don't satisfy. And so there's the lie. And I'll run through a couple of examples just to help us think through how to apply this, but there's, we could go all kinds of directions on this. But, you know, some of the more obvious examples would be like in drugs and alcohol addiction. So the lie of, of abuse of drugs and alcohol is this makes you feel better, and this will make you feel better, right? But the fact is, when people are addicted to those substances, they have broken relationships, they physically are harmed, and they have financial consequences, right? It's just destruction. I mean, I could tell you the story. I mean, I'll, I'll change the names because of, you know, situations in the past and other places, but I could tell you the story of Sally, who was a drug addict, who literally stole from her kids so she could buy drugs. That's a true story, right? It's the, we, we see it. Or we could talk about a porn habit where we just, it persists over time, over and over again, and we never really deal with the problem, and there's long-term damage that happens to marriage relationships, even future marriage relationships, because of failure to deal with that issue. And I could tell you, I could tell you stories about, you know, some guy named Bob, right? And he just tolerated it for so long, and he ends up alienated from his wife 15 years later because he thought, this will satisfy me, and he never dealt with the issue. There's a warning here about these high places. Or we could talk about escapism in entertainment, where a persistent idol, right? Where I could tell you about Margaret, who instead of dealing with the problems in her life, she hid in her Netflix account, right? And rather than take that time to actually address what's going on in a family and do things that need to be done, she just got distracted. Or I could tell you about Steve, who has burned so many hours on PlayStation, right? And yet his family situation is a wreck. But he's really good at Call of Duty, you know? It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? These persistent idols, right? And the promises, we'll satisfy you, we'll satisfy you. They never satisfy. There's always a new show. They always have to come out with a new gaming system. There's always, because it can't scratch the itch. It cannot bring the satisfaction. We could talk about obsession with career or money or appearance, fashion, all that. And again, that persistent high place, it's just there constantly. And everybody's saying, oh yeah, this is what, you get this. Oh, this is going to make, this is going to finally, this is, and this, oh, did you get the new thing? Have you heard about the new thing? And listen, it'll destroy you. If you think that's going to solve your problems and satisfy your soul, you just got to know it will destroy you. What does Jesus say about our idols? The true son of David. Well, he died for our idolatry. 
Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm going to rescue you from that dark world and transfer you to my kingdom. How does that work? Well, because he, he died for our sins. All those persistent high places we kept going to, we keep going to. Right? Jesus died for those sins. And he rose from the dead and he has gifted us in his spirit. And his spirit leads us away from the high places, right? Away from the fake Edens, right? He's leading us in faith. That's what the true son of David has done for us. He's not tolerating the high places. And he certainly isn't up there worshiping on them himself. No, Jesus is saying, I died to rescue you from that false God. Come with me. And yes, it's a word of warning, but it's also a word of grace. Inevitably, you know, when we talk about idolatry, right, inevitably we all have different struggles, but here's the deal. There's an uncomfortable moment where the Spirit of God hits you and says, that one's yours. And I just want to encourage you this morning to to receive that confrontation from the Spirit of God through His Word and to not turn away in despair, but to turn to Christ in hope. Because, Because Jesus died for us, we can sing it as well. And we don't have to go back to the high places. We don't have to tolerate the idolatry. We don't have to nurse it along. We can say no to it. Again, thinking like the world will destroy you. Watch. Let's just circle back to verses uh, 1 through 3 here with Ahaz because we have to talk about the shocking sin. That Again, thinking like the world. Again, verse 1, getting a running start. This is in the 17th year of Pekah. Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah. 20 years old when he became king, reigned 16 years. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God like his ancestor David, but he walked in the ways of those kings of Israel. He even sacrificed his son in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had disposed, dispossessed excuse me, before the Israelites. This is just as bad as it gets. And it is what it says it is. We have evidence of child sacrifices in ancient Eastern religion and Canaanite religions. We know this was a thing. The fact is, what was, what was the lie? Well, it was worship of the Canaanite god Molech, okay, who was in some Canaanite mythologies, he was one of the rulers of the afterlife. It's, sometimes it's hard to get nailed down on the details on that. But one way or another, the theory was, if you would give Molech your son, uh, firstborn, then Molech would bless you, either in the afterlife or in the current life. That was the deal. And so Ahaz, thinking like the world, right? Ahaz has seen other kings from other nations do this. And he wants, what does he want? He wants blessing. He wants provision. He wants peace. He wants his kids to be right. He wants, you know, he wants all these things. He wants the nation to prosper. He wants all the stuff, all the same stuff we want. That's what he wants. And the world said, hey, kill your kid and you can get it. And so that's what he did. And I would love to tell you, I mean, I would love to tell you this is just an outmoded way of thinking, right? But we know it's not. Because on the one hand, number one, we know we live in a culture where there is a clear message that says, if you are pregnant with a child and it is an inconvenience to you and will disrupt your life too much, then you should end that pregnancy. And I'm just telling you this, there is no doubt in my mind that our culture's stance on abortion is directly this. Sacrifice your child so that you can be happy. And there is grace when we have failed in that. you got to know that Jesus is rescuing us from that way of thinking. And some of us in days past, had, you know, we, we bought that lie. 
But there is grace in Jesus rescuing us out of that way of thinking. But we just have to call it what it is this morning. And that's what it is. It is, it's a way of thinking that says, my, uh, my way of, of defining happiness is what determines whether or not this child will live or die. It's not right. On the second hand, moving away from the abortion issue, think about it this way. Ahaz was treating his children, right, the way everyone else treated their children. He had adopted, I mean, literally, he had adopted the thinking of the nations, the Canaanite nations beforehand. And you know what? That's what they did with their kids. So that's what he should do with his kids. Parents and grandparents, there's a special warning in here for us. Thinking like the world will destroy you. It will destroy you in that you lose blessing. It will destroy you in persistent idolatry. But third, it will destroy you in the destruction of families. This is the deal. The world is going to say, this is how you should raise your kids. And God is saying, this is how you should raise your kids. And they are not the same thing. They are two different worldviews. And it really doesn't have anything to do with schooling. It has everything to do with how you view your role as a parent in investing in your children spiritually. This is the issue. And so the question is this. The world's going to say, you know what? You should have them do this. Have them do that. Make them like this. Make them like that. Tell them this is wrong. Tell them this is right. All that kind of stuff, right? And all of that effectively is child sacrifice. Where you're saying, sure, just go be with the world. Think like the world. And then don't be surprised when they live like the world. On the other hand, we have the greater son of David. Who, what was Jesus' deal with kids? Jesus' deal with kids. I love it. Jesus is welcoming the kids. You remember the disciples' attitude about the kids? Pests. They had worked in kingdom kids before. They knew. They're like, (laughs) keep those kids away from him, right? I know. Keep those kids away from him, right? And Jesus says, you guys got it all wrong. These, you bring these kids in here. Because if these kids, and it's like those kids grew up, and what did they remember about Jesus? That he welcomed them, that he, that he talked to them, that he taught them, right? That's what they remember. And when they had to make a choice, am I going to worship and follow the Lord Jesus? Or am I going to, I mean, they had that memory, right? And so here's, the, it's a totally different way where Jesus not only values children, but then he gives us instruction. And it's clear in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's also clear in Ephesians chapter 6. But parents, especially fathers, you are called to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to love and fear God, to worship God. And so that is different thinking than what they will get if all they ever get is what the world is feeding them, right? And so this moment with Ahaz, it's, it's brutal on the one hand. Like, it's just, we're like, oh, I would never do that. And you're like, wait a minute, hold on. What am I letting them watch? What am I constantly feeding them? Am I ever teaching them? Am I ever on the front end instructing them about how they need to think about this stuff going on at school or, or that stuff going on at camp or whatever's going on, right? Am I ever in front of them about what they're listening to and what they're being influenced by and what their friends are talking about? Like, is there any conversation about that at all? Or am I just Canaanite in how I'm going to approach this? There's a warning here. I mean, you're supposed to be shocked by this child sacrifice. You're supposed to be like, oh. And then there's the takeaway. May it never be with me. May it never be with my family. The fact is, thinking like the world will destroy families. And Jesus says, treasure those children and lead them to me. Help them, equip them to think as believers in this world. Help them to ask the right questions. Most of all, help them to worship the right God. 
thinking like the world will destroy us. And there's more. Watch verse 5. More on Ahaz. Then Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, came to wage war against Jerusalem. They besieged Ahaz, but were not able to conquer him. At that time, Aram's king Rezin recovered Elot for Aram and expelled the Judahites from Elot. Then the Arameans came to Elot, and they still live there today. Verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. March up and save me from the grasp of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace and sent them to the king of Assyria as a bribe. So the king of Assyria listened to him and marched up to Damascus and captured it. He deported its people to Ker, but put Rezin to death. Let me just pause here. I know I don't have to tell you. This is the famous incident with Pekka and Rezin, and I know you're familiar with this. Um, this is, you should be familiar with it. Uh, this is a Christmas story. This is from, this is the background in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. This is, this is the background from that section of Isaiah, where Isaiah promises King Ahaz, right, in the prophecy, he says, the Lord's going to give you a son, uh, uh, give a son right, to, to send from a virgin that's going to bless you, and it's going to rescue Israel and Judah. Actually, it talks about specifically there, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, about how the darkness was over Galilee, but then there was going to be this light, and the people in Galilee would see this light walking with them, right? I mean, that's the calling in Isaiah 7 through 9. This is the background. Pekah and Rezin, so Pekah, king of the northern kingdom, Rezin, the king of Assyria, they teamed up to try to fend off Assyria, and then also to strengthen their hold uh, of the, the local area by attacking Judah. So it's civil war, northern kingdom against southern kingdom. And they actually, um, you know, succeeded for the most part, except they didn't actually get through to Jerusalem. And so here's King Ahaz, and he's got the prophet Isaiah telling him, and I gave it to you in the bulletin, but he's telling him, trust God, trust God, trust God. Like he had t-shirts, trust God. That was his thing. Like it was, listen, trust God. Don't trust Assyria. Don't trust Egypt. Don't trust your money. Don't trust, trust God. That's the deal. He can deliver, right? That's Isaiah's message. And Ahaz says, thanks, but no thanks. I've got a sure thing. And did you, and just in the bulletin verse, or Isaiah chapter 8, you are to regard the Lord of, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Come on, Ahaz. You can do it. Trust the Lord. But he didn't. What does he do? The wording is very interesting, right? In verse 7, he sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. <laughs> no. no you, as king over Judah, you are God's servant. And you are God's son in a special way. <sighs> in the language, here's the ask. March up and save me. Deliver me. Rescue me. From the grasp of Aram and Pekka, yeah, or from uh, Pekka and Rezin. And then up, oh, there's a cost. Where are we going to get the money for this? I know. We'll take the money out of the temple that's been given to the Lord and we'll give that to Assyria. We've already seen that happen in First and Second Kings, and here it happens again. So the king of Assyria, verse 9, delivers. He comes to town. He attacks Damascus. Pekka and Rezin, their resistance is crushed, right? This is the historical you know, circumstance behind taking the, the people into exile from the northern kingdom. And you'd think, oh, yeah, well, it worked, didn't it? Guess what? They didn't stop at the northern kingdom. 
It wasn't just a few years later, as we will see when we get to that section of 2 Kings, that Assyria comes back for the southern kingdom. Because thinking like the world will destroy you. Number four, it will destroy you in tragic false faith. This is the, the, the emphasis in this part of, of 2 Kings. It's the tragedy of trusting in Assyria to save them and even raiding the temple to pay that you know, bribe so that he'll do it, all the while realizing later that they're actually paying the people who will come and destroy them. It's self-destruction, this idol worship, this worldly way of thinking, this trying to find the solution and ultimate satisfaction right, for our souls in anything other than God himself. It's self-destructive. And the tragedy is, we think it'll save us. We think, oh, this is it. This is the answer. This is going to solve the problem. Those idols can't deliver. They can actually, ultimately, only destroy. If we're worshiping them as gods, that's what they'll do. And so we're back to some of those examples we talked about earlier with the addiction, those persistent high places, with the the sexual immorality, with the escapism in the internet, with the obsession with career, all, all those things, obsession with appearance, all that stuff, right? The, 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 the tragedy is, the advertisement says, this is the solution you need. And in reality, it can't deliver. It's tragic false faith. So, not only is Jesus, the greater son of David, the actual deliverer, which is awesome, by the way, right? That there is a deliverer that actually works. Praise God that there is such a thing as soul satisfaction, and it does come through our Savior Jesus, right? This is, this is eternally good news, right? But not only that, Jesus is the literal fulfillment of the prophecies Isaiah gave to Ahaz at just this moment, where the message was, trust me from the Lord. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, says to Ahaz, trust me. I don't know what your struggle is this morning, but I know this always applies. When you're threatened, when you don't feel satisfied, you're going to be tempted to believe the lie and to send a tribute to somewhere else to buy that forgiveness or to buy that peace or to buy that solution. But you just got to know, fundamentally, at the end of the day, the question is, will you trust him? Will you look to him for that deliverance, for that satisfaction? It doesn't mean there aren't practical helps that the Lord will send our way. But it does mean this. Ultimately, if we try to find solutions to our problems outside of trusting Jesus, they will always fall flat and fail. It might work in the short run. I mean, after all, Assyria de- defeated Damascus. For, for a while, it worked in Judah. But it didn't last. This is not the end of the story with Assyria. And there's a warning here. Right? Thinking like the world, it will destroy you. And it's a tragedy when we take this faith that we should be putting in the Lord and we put it in something else. And it's ridiculous that we would take that money from the temple and send it along. I mean, right, we're just, we're totally missing it here. By the way, stay tuned in 2 Kings in the fall. You will witness the Lord deliver Judah, spoiler alert, from the Assyrians in a way that is miraculous and shows what were they thinking. And that's going to be the title of that message is what were they thinking, right? But then we're going to say, what were we thinking? Because we do it. We do it where we're, we're tempted. We're like, Assyria, come save me. But it can't. Tragic false faith. Finally, thinking like the world will destroy you. Watch what happens at the end here with Ahaz. There's a bizarre set of events here, but just work with me on it. Verse 10. King Ahaz, so this is the Assyrians have conquered, right? And now Pekah and Rezin, they're taken care of. 
the Assyrians are now in control of Damascus. Watch verse 10. King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria and pay the tribute, of course. When he saw the altar that was in Damascus, King Ahaz sent a model of the altar and complete plans for its construction to the priest Uriah. Okay, hold on. Solomon built the temple back in 1 Kings. We were there not too long ago, right? Solomon built the temple that was in Jerusalem. That temple was sanctified, dedicated to the Lord, right? All those things that were built for it, it all, all of that was dedicated for the Lord. Um, Ahaz goes up to Damascus and he sees another temple, an altar for worship and a temple. And f- to what God was that temple for? We don't know exactly, but a Canaanite god or goddess, right? Probably Canaanite god. Uh, we don't know the specific name. So he goes up there, he sees the altar. And you know what he thinks? This is nice. I like this. I got these sweet cush- cushioned seats. Yeah, I got LED lights in this place. Right? The bathrooms are nice. They're new, right? And he's like, I like that altar. I like the, you know, I like the way they do this. Thinking like the world, right? So he sends plans. He gets, he says, hey, who's got the plans for this thing? Oh, yeah, it's over here, right? So then he sends the plans back to Jerusalem while he's still in Damascus. Verse 11, the priest, the priest, Uriah, the priest who's supposed to lead the people in sacrificing for their sins before the Lord to mediate between the priest, built the altar according to all the instructions King Ahaz sent from Damascus. It's not good. Therefore, by the time King Ahaz came back from Damascus, the priest Uriah had completed it. When the king came back from Damascus, he saw the altar. Then he approached the altar and ascended it to do what? To worship at it. Right now it's in Jerusalem, but now it's been built and remodeled according to the Canaanite plan. He offered his burnt offering and his grain offering, poured out his drink offering, splattered the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar, on the pagan altar. Verse 14, he he went up further. He took the bronze altar that was before the Lord in front of the temple between his altar and the Lord's temple and put it on the north side of the altar. Now he's rearranging furniture at the temple. This is not okay. Seriously, verse 15. Then King Ahaz commanded the priest Uriah, offer on the great altar the morning, the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering. Also offer the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and other drink offerings. Splatter on the altar all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. The bronze altar will be for me to seek guidance. He has substituted a new pagan altar for the one that they were using. He says, do all the sacrifices now on the new altar and we'll just use this old one for like my special private time. That, that was the deal, when I seek, seek the Lord. But he's moved it, right? So that's the deal. Verse 16, the priest Uriah should have said no, but he did everything King Ahaz commanded. Then, 17, then King Ahaz cut the frames, cut off the frames of the water carts and removed the bronze basin from each of them. He took the basins from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pavement to satisfy the king of Assyria. He removed from the Lord's temple the Sabbath canopy they had built in the palace and he closed the outer entrance for the king. The rest of the events of Ahaz's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, and his son Hezekiah became king in his place. This little remodel project, it's a problem. And just so you can visualize it, I'll sh- we can show you. This is, this is Solomon's temple. You see these, these big bronze basins with water, right? And they're on these 12 oxen. And so he's basically saying potentially because he needs the money because of the payoff. We don't know for sure. But he takes the bronze and he basically melts it all down. He takes the frames 
uh, with the cherubim. Those are from the inside. So the cherubim representing the angels that, of course, serve the Lord and on ben- for the benefit of his people. Now we've removed that symbolism. He's taken that out to take that bronze. He's moved the altar, built a new altar, moved that altar around to the side and put the new pagan altar in. And then, you know, he's got all, this, uh, this, this, all these changes to all that bronze. He's taken all that away, melted it down so that he can have some kind of money because he's given all the rest of it away to Assyria. All of this, why? In verse 18, to satisfy the king of Assyria. Here's the, here's the tragedy in this. The, the imagery is he's basically making the temple just like a, a Canaanite temple. And when he did that, what did he do? He's robbing God's house of its distinction. And here's the fact. Thinking like the world will destroy you. Fifthly, in loss of distinction. If we are not discernible from the world, we've lost. That's the deal. So he goes up to Damascus. He sees the fancy Canaanite thing. He's like, oh yeah, we should do that down there. And to please the Assyrian king and to make it all cutting edge and all that, he takes all these steps to make it just like the way the world would want it, okay? And the warning here is so clear. When we are indistinguishable from the world, we have ceased to worship God. Because that's what's happened here. They closed off. There was a special entrance from the king's palace to the temple. They closed that entrance off. They took away the the, the Sabbath canopy to, to allow people to worship, right, on the Sabbath that would protect them from the heat of the sun. They took that away. Again, they've taken away in, in the, the water basins. There was some symbolism there that the water flowed down to the Gentiles. And so it's like, we're taking away all that, so that's not happening anymore. We're taking away the angels, taking all this stuff away. The, the implication is it ceased to be a place of worshiping of the Lord because he wanted it to be like everyone else's temple. When we, when we don't have any distinction, when we look like and sound like and think like everybody else, we've ceased to worship the Lord. Because, and here's the deal, we cannot value Jesus supremely and just be like everybody else. It's not possible. There has to be distinction. And this remodel project, this is presented in negative terms. It should not have happened. It shouldn't have happened because it shouldn't have needed to happen because of paying off Assyria, number one. Number two, it's all from peer pressure. He's just doing it to, to fit in with the world. But number three, what's happened is that the effective worship of the Lord has been sacrificed to make him fit in. And I'm telling you, that is going to be our battle. Maybe more so than any, any of the rest of it, is that we just don't want to be different. Because honestly, when we're different, it means we're weird. And if we're weird, people are going to ask, they might not ask. They might tease. When grown-ups tease, they persecute, right? It's, it, it happens. And so the reality is it's just easier if I just go with the flow and look like everybody else. But do you realize that Jesus has created his church, meaning he is graciously rescuing sinners and bringing them into his family so that we will be distinct. You remember the imagery from the Gospels, Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Jesus tells us that we are to be salt, And salt is good, Jesus says. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be seasoned again? He's like, you're meant to be distinct and different. And if you lose that distinction, you got a big problem. Because now, whatever you're worshiping, it's not God. I mean, there's there's a warning here for us, a sober warning. I think we can apply this in two ways, two arenas. We can apply it corporately. This is why we don't have smoke machines at Greenhome Bible Chapel. Does anybody notice that we don't have smoke machines for the worship? Have you noticed that? 
A lot of people ask for that. We get a lot of requests every week. <laughs> That's right. How come we don't have smoke machines? Because the live stream, you want to be able to see through. Anyway, uh, why, don't we, why don't we have smoke machines? It's not just because of allergies and asthma. We don't have smoke machines because this is not a concert that we're doing here. I mean, that's not, it's not a concert. This is a worship service. It's totally different. So no, we're not going to have smoke machines. We're not about manipulating people's you know, uh, environments so that way they feel a certain way. No, this is, for, this is a place dedicated to genuine worship of God. That's what we're going for. And so no, we're not going to have a smoke machine. Stop asking for it. You know who you are, okay? Stop asking for it. <laughs> it means as a church, we don't take our cues from the world. And I use a humorous example there to make a serious point. We're not going to take our cues from the world. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to seek to love one another well. And we're going to seek to put God first. Right? Love God, love people. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to seek to glorify him by making and maturing disciples of Jesus. And there's, a, there's some freedom in that about how we go about that. But at the end of the day, what we don't want to be doing is taking our cues from the world. We're not going to do that as a church. Okay? There's a second arena, though, where this applies, and it's personally. Where in our personal worship right? In our personal worship, we say, I'm going to value God, and therefore, in as much as it happens in my culture, I will be distinct. So it goes like this. I'm not just going to go with the crowd. Everybody's watching that show. You know what's in that show content-wise, and you say, I'm not going to do it because I belong to Jesus. But everybody's talking about it. I know, but I just, there are certain lines I don't cross, and that's, I'm not going to do that. You know, but everybody else is thinking this way about that, and they're doing this, and there's going to be temptation for you to go to that party and participate in what they're doing at that party, and you know God has called you to sobriety, and he's called you to sexual purity, and so you're like, I, I don't, you know what? I'm not going. I'm not going there. Or if I'm going there, I'm not drinking, because I know where it's going to end up with me, right? And so there's distinction there, and you're going to look weird, and there's no way to avoid it. But on a personal level, you say, I'm not going to take my cues from the king of Assyria, Okay, I'm going to take my cues from the King of Kings. I mean, Jesus, this is the deal. The greater son of David, this is so, you remember Jesus had this weird deal with the temple where he did not, he, he was negative about the temple in his earthly ministry because they had all the, the money changing going on and the, you know, the, 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 all the corruption in that. It was also the seat of power for corrupt leadership in, in Israel at the time. So that was all faulty and all wrong. But Jesus said, tear this thing down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And Jesus is saying, in John 2, when he says that, Jesus is saying, I am the remodel this temple needs. Let's remodel the temple. Not according to what's in Damascus. Let's remodel the temple. Jesus says, I am the temple. What? I am the place where sinners can be made right with God. I am the place where God dwells with his people through sacrifice. Jesus is the temple because he is the sacrifice. And he's the Savior. He's the one who makes that offer and says, here, be forgiven, be restored, and be different. Listen, again, I don't know what your personal struggle is at this moment, but I know we all, are, we all will struggle with thinking like the world in one way or another. And you might just ask, where am I too much like everybody else? Where have I lost my distinction? We're not just saying to be different for the sake of being different, okay? We're saying be different because we worship Jesus. Right? That's, that's the calling here. And this remodel, it's just, it was just tragic because of what motivated it. You might need the reminder from James chapter 4 where James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now, we live in the world. We love the world. We show the love of God to the world. 
what we can't do, brothers and sisters, is think like the world. We've been saved out of that. My good friend, Charlie Haddon Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, that paradise, which the first Adam lost, the second Adam will regain for us with added bliss and superior joy. And I like that one. Superior how? Superior in nature. You've never been satisfied the way we will be satisfied with Jesus forever. You've never had that. We, We get good gifts right here and there. We taste good things, but we've never had that level of soul satisfaction. It's superior in nature, that joy. It's also superior in its effectiveness. This is, this is uh, a joy that lasts. And it's superior in its duration. Because it's effective, it lasts forever. Because He lasts forever. Because in Him, we last forever. And I'm telling you what, we were made for that. So don't, for a minute, don't get comfortable thinking like the world. Because it will destroy us. Would you pray with me? We'll ask for God's help. Lord, once again, we pause this morning. Uh, There's a lot here for us, Lord. Um, We want to exalt you. We see clearly the temptation in these different ways to think like the world, and we see the destruction that results from that. But Lord, uh, in all this, there's this underlying call for us to value you above all else. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the greater son of David and that, that you are the solution to these problems, that you provide the lasting answer. And Lord, we see so clearly the temptation to idolatry and worldliness, and we ask that by your spirit you would convict us where we're struggling in this. Loss of distinction, Lord, show us where we're thinking and acting like the world too much. And Lord, change us. Lead us by your spirit in, in a different way of living a way of living that's motivated by faith. And Lord, we pray. We pray in light of your grace, because of your love for us, that this warning, it's not simply a warning of condemnation, it's a warning out of love to your children to call us to faithful living in light of who you are. So Lord, we ask that you would help us, make us distinct, protect us from worldly thinking, protect us from the destruction that it causes. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified by the distinct body that you have created in the church. We ask these things because of Jesus. Amen.